This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to independent film. Inside, you'll find tools, tips, and tricks vetted by industry professionals, independent films that will inspire your creativity, filmmaking events where you can rub elbows with filmmakers just like you, and so much more. The best part of it all, it's absolutely free. All you have to do is go to www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe. And within a few clicks, you'll be part of our newsletter community. Again, that's www.banzai.film forward slash subscribe to get Indie Insights, a free bi-weekly newsletter from Chris and Nick at Bonsai Creative. You're listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley, and with me today is my good friend and Make It podcast co-host, Nicholas Bugs. Hello, hello, Chris here with another episode of the Make It Podcast, and this is an Indie Talk week, and I have special guests with me today. The one and only Charity Wakefield and her partner in crime, Maggie Contreras, known for the documentary Maestra. And I'm just so glad to have you guys here, you ladies here with me today to talk about this and obviously the world of film in general. So uh, welcome. Welcome to uh, Indie Talk, ladies. Hi. Thanks for having us. Anytime, anytime. I do want both of you to sort of give this audience a deeper sense of of who you are. But before you do that, can you just tell everybody where you are, like physically located right now? Okay, I'll start. Oh, you go. Go ahead. (laughs) I should have said, I should have said Charity first, Maggie second. Wait, which one of you normally goes first in these situations? I would say Maggie should go first. She's the director. I'm the producer. Mm-hmm. Maggie should go first, even though I that's, did try. To that's, that's fascinating, you know, by the way. We'll get back into that in a little bit. <laughs> All right, Maggie, go ahead. I am just waking up in Los Angeles, California. <laughs> good. Thank you. And Charity? I'm just coming to the end of my day, kind of, my end of, end of my working day in London, England. Um, and it's just stopped raining. You didn't ask for the weather, but I'm going to give you it. Oh, uh, that's that's totally fine. Not here, so you can see Charity and I are at polar opposite ends yeah. of of our environments. When is the last time it's, it rained in, in LA, Maggie? We had a beautifully wet summer, and now it's making up for it by just being an oven. Yeah, it's an oven here. I am in beautiful Nashville, Tennessee, and um, it's been hovering around the 100 degree mark for the last couple of weeks. And what we have here that you guys might not enjoy is humidity. Mm. And the humidity is like uh, you walk outside and you're already like covered in sweat. Now, the good news is you don't need to invest in sauna. 
You don't need to invest in steam rooms. You have one. You have a natural steam room. Just go sit on your porch. How do you handle traveling around outside? Because I did a film in Cuba once, and um, mm-hmm. I remember we we had this lovely hotel that we stayed in, in Havana, and mm-hmm. it was just the other side, down this amazing, um, I can't remember the name of it. I want to call it Las Ramblas, but I think that's in Barcelona. There's like a promenade at the edge of the beach, and it looked like we could walk into the old town within 20 minutes. And it was so incredibly humid. Like the heat I can take. I have family in Spain. I've been to Spain a lot. Um, spent a lot of time in the heat, but the humidity, I just couldn't do it. I, I was I was really like kind of embarrassed with my situation. I was like, I'll be walking to set. I'll be walking into town. I'll be doing all this stuff. And I stepped outside and within five minutes, I was like, I can't, I actually just can't handle it. It was terrible. Yeah. So... Well, how do we handle travel? You know, the thing about Nashville is, is that it's doesn't have public transportation. Not right. really. I mean, there's right. a train that nobody rides. I um, mean, like your legs, though. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we walk. do it. We, we do it. We walk and, and get yeah. on the bike. That's what I'm saying. You can be very fit in Nashville, especially oh, you can. Oh, that's yeah, you mean. can. Because right. you just drop the, you just drop the excess BS because you're outside and it's going to come off of you. For, for sure. Um, we had, we interviewed a uh, producer at least tell me this young lady's name. I'm, I don't know why I'm forgetting her. Name. I'm having a brain fart, but we interviewed a young lady who uh, films almost exclusively in Cuba. Mm. And she was saying that the electricity kept going off. Like, like yeah. electricity security is a thing when you're shooting there. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, the film credit is that, um, still like will they still pay like for 100% of your film if you hire all Cuban crew so I wasn't producing on that one I was an actor in it but yeah we worked with the national film company of Cuba called Ikayak and you have to co-produce with them well you certainly did at the time that we did our film um and we had we hired Cuban nationals um throughout so that was an amazing experience for us going and working with a part Cuban part in fact Scottish and part Mexican part English team. And yeah, everything is run by the government, absolutely everything. And there were, there are kind of, um, their, their history of film is unbelievable. Like this is probably a whole nother show, but because of the fact that Cuba was so set apart from the rest of our kind of, you know, let's say certainly in England, we've had a huge amount of American film influence and, you know, we've, given some films to you not quite as many um but in cuba they have entirely their own kind of um history of film and and their right. films are completely independent of, of anything else and any other influence until really quite recently so and they're very proud of that um so it was amazing to work with them but yeah in terms of the technicalities like we had all of our costumes on one costume kind of like a if you can imagine like a 1970s brown VW camper van mm. extended is my memory yeah. of it. And um, wow. it all had to stay on that one bus and have a guard outside it. Um, it and we, yeah, like things like even like, yeah, facilities were, it, it, yeah, Cuba is, is incredible in, in so many ways. And this is not a long enough kind of conversation and we're not going to be talking directly about Cuba all, all this time. And I'd love to do it. You, but, can, you can go as long as you want to, but, well, but, I, mean, but I think you're, I think you're right about that. It's, it's, it's a mixed bag for me. Like, well, right. I just, my experience of working there was just that, um, the creativity you're talking like out of the, like incredible, like there's so much creative going on in Cuba 
um, in terms of like a general level of um, financial support, that's um, a different story. And in, ter in terms of what we're kind of used to in our industries, the kind of level of, of yeah, access to, to everything really, um, it wasn't easy to film there at all. Yeah, I guess that's part of the mixed bag. I think it has this amazing charm because you do have Old Town. You do have like these cars that are from the 1950s and 60s. Because I don't know if people realize like they literally don't get imports. No, they, they haven't for many years. Things are really changing now in the last five years or so. I can't speak to what it is now, but my experience of going there, it was, it was about 10 years ago or so, was that it was a very make-do and mend culture, which is beautiful and not, and very nostalgic to look at. There's the kind of um, the facades along the beach, along that kind of beach view that I mentioned are they're, they're painted beautiful colors and they're kind of um, slightly wearing away and that's stunning. And that's why so many people go there to shoot either adverts or music videos or, or film. Like it looks absolutely incredible, but the, when you stay there, you do feel a bit like, yeah, you, you know, there's also a level of, there isn't enough, um, you know, financial support to be able to upkeep things to a higher standard, um, which is a whole political discussion that, that um, is, it would be too deep for me to get into. Um, yeah. But yeah, the history there, the culture there, the, the kind of the food, the dancing, the, like the music, it's just unbelievable. And, and I, I love doing our film. Yeah. I, what's the name of that movie? Uh, Day of the Flowers. It was a film with um, Carlos Acosta, who's a Cuban ballet dancer playing, not a ballet dancer, playing a dance teacher. And myself and Eva Berthesel played two Scottish uh, women. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's quite fun in Cuba doing a Glaswegian accent in the middle yeah. of Cuba with, with no dialect coach. So please don't judge the accent, but do judge the scenery because it's stunning. Um, and yeah, that was one I of the, my formative experiences, actually, kind of in terms of, that was one of the point, points at which I really realized I would love to produce because it was a it was a really kind of comprehensive experience. Like all the cast and crew were staying in the same hotel. And, you know, it wasn't easy. There were lots of things that failed and changed. Like we had to, you know, change locations. We had, we, we, you know, we lost some costumes one day because there was a problem on that costume bus I mentioned. Yeah. Um, just lots of things went wrong and there was a lot of, there was a real sense of like a group sharing of those issues and problems. And it, it wasn't hierarchical in a way that other films can be. And I think some of that problem solving mm. I'm really, really attracted to, which I feel like is essentially what producers do is look at the maths. How can this be done? And to have, to not panic and to say, how do I, how do I make sections of this huge, um, you know, and fascinating provocation of, of how can this film be made and concentrate and then start to kind of delegate and all that kind of thing. And, and, and you have to be somebody that's excited about, about problem solving. And I know that, you know, I don't know Maggie, Maggie's done far more producing than me. I must say, um, Maggie, you might, might want to take this now. It is. You have to, you have to love to problem solve when presented a problem, it has to make you excited to want to solve it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that's true. Yeah. Uh, my hope, or this is a totally going with the Cuban tangent, which will, <laughs> I'll be short, but I'm trying. Charity would be my first call. I'm trying to get back there um, with a documentary uh, about uh, Cuban punk rockers back in when AIDS hit the island. Wow. Oh, man. That, that, very, very fast. 
And there was these misfits who, uh, you know, lots of things were are still illegal there. Listening to punk rock music and spiking your hair and ripping your clothes yep. uh, could land you in jail. And um, these people were coming from mainly the barrios where you didn't have color TV and you'd get arrested for your music and you were probably hungry. Um, but what Cuba had then and still has is a really, really great um, public health system. So when when AIDS came to the island, they acted really fast. They um, went door to door. They tested your blood. And if you're positive, it's like, right, there's this, there's this facility. Uh, you're all going to go there. We're not too sure what this thing is, but you're all going to live there. And when you got there, you got three meals a day. You got color TV. You could listen to whatever music you wanted. And um, one of the uh, leaders of this they were called Los Freakies, the, free, the freaks, Los Freakies. Um, their leader, Papo, he ended up in the facility. And when his friends came to visit him, they're like, dude, this is, this is better than what we're doing. And you're listening to the music. This is great. Give me some of your blood. <laughs> you have hundreds of young people who injected themselves with the HIV virus on purpose um, so they could all live in community together. It's an incredible story. Oh, um, we ha I have to see that. We yeah. have to make that. Yeah. <laughs> we got to make that. We got to make that. It's it's a toughie, though, because you do have to, as charity experience, like you do, well, as Americans, like we can't just go and do that. We would have to hire um, other production companies to help. Mm -hmm. um, but is it true that you get the, that, that they'll still pay 100% of the movie if you do that? I sincerely doubt that they would do that for a documentary that is putting a lens on their history. Okay. I think we're more about to going, um, likely. Yeah, that's interesting. I think yeah, it's true too yeah. about what you're saying about producers. I don't know like what your family situations are like, but I have three kids and kids are not fans of the producer's mind. Like <laughs> they want to vent to you. They don't want you to solve their problem. And I had to learn that over time. I also have two daughters. So it's like, okay, I'll solve this problem for you. No, no problem. And they're like, I don't want you to solve the problem for me. I just want you to listen. I just want you to stop. Right. And I'm like, oh, but I really want to solve this problem for you because I can do it. I have the answers. And it's like, nope, nope. So it's, it's kind of like this idea of like, you can never be an emperor in your own, you know, your own house. You know, you can never be, I don't know if that's the right phraseology. So I have to look that up. It's close. But, but it is that sense of like, this job allows us to go out and solve problems because in your own house, not everybody wants you to solve their problem for them. And that's a very human thing as well. To, to but actually that now. is to solve the problem is what you recognize. You're, you already are doing that. If you're recognizing that they need to be listened to, venting kind of without anybody stopping them is kind of therapeutic for them. And you're actually kind of you are doing that. Um, and then after that, you can kind of get to the, the kind of problem solve thing, I reckon. I mean, I, I have a son, um, he's only two and a half nearly. So he doesn't really uh, do such kind of, you know, uh, intellectual, <laughs> intellectual. He's, he's just, you know. yeah. 
uh, you definitely vent. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to deal with it all. Um, But I just find that it's uh, brilliantly kind of normalizing in the sense that you can get really kind of incredibly worried about the tiniest detail of working, whichever role I'm doing. And particularly with acting, I can go very in on myself. And because it's a it's a job in which you're asked to prepare a performance with your own face and voice and people are going to be critical of that and you're going to be critical of that. So, um, you know, you're really introverted thinking about yourself all the time. You can get, you know, really wound up about it. And then you come home and you see your kid and you're like, this is just, you know, not to undermine it because obviously filmmaking and entertainment is incredibly important. We've particularly realised that over the pandemic. However, these individual moments can be let go of. And that's what I think um, having a kid or a relationship or close friendships, even being around other people, it just takes you out of yourself. And that's really important. And that is similarly to what you were just saying, a way of kind of solving a problem without actually solving the problem, because you just, anything in life that allows you to kind of just let go of the, of the anxiety around a certain thing can, can really help you move on through decisions. It's hard. It's hard in filmmaking. I don't know about you, Maggie, or, or, or you, Chris, how you feel about those points when, and in film where you're trying to you're really trying to make a particular point work, and then there's a certain point we have to like just move through and accept that a different way yeah. is going to get to a similar place. Well, you've just defined documentary filmmaking. Yeah, yeah, you did. Yeah. <laughs> and we want. I want to get into that, but uh, I am the tangent king, and and we will just like literally just talk about Cuba for an hour if I'm not careful. So I do want to go back and just tell this audience. I mean, they already know I'm a big idiot. So I mispronounced your last name, Maggie, tell us, uh, give us a little background on you and tell us how to really pronounce your name. And, uh, and then charity, you go after that. You weren't that far off. You just missed an R. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Background. So Charity and I met um, when I was spending a lot of time in London. Mm. I started off my storytelling in film as an actor, um, did classical uh, stage training. That's sort of my background of of storytelling. And that really does affect how I uh, show up behind the camera with my subjects um, for documentaries, something we can get in later. So uh, it is relevant. And that's how Charity and I met. And then, um, yeah, I'm originally from Arizona. Um, My father's side uh, came up from Mexico, settled in Arizona. My mom's side were mountain people of Virginia for generations. And I'm a product of both cultures, grew up in both cultures. Um, thus, the last name Contreras, unless you want to pronounce it really, really well, which is Contreras. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I came to LA as an actor, um, and I did sort of random TV shows and commercials. And all the time, I was wanting to use all of my skill sets. So I ended up um, working for one of the top publicists in documentary film. And what this publicist would do is she'd take a film from, usually it was always Sundance. Um, One time we had a South by Southwest film, which actually is how I met um, my producing partner, a director who I produced for seven years. And it was there that I met the documentary 
community. Never mm. thought about producing, never thought about directing and uh, sort of lived in that space in the doc world. Um, and one of our clients was like, hey, I think you should think about producing. I'm like, okay, sort of put that in the back of my head. And then an opportunity arose and I ended up stopping that job in the publicity world. And I started, I went in-house in a production for a production company uh, called Berkeley, um, which is Neil Berkeley. He's a director. And I produced that company and him and, and those films of ours for seven years. We did uh, Gilbert about Gilbert Gottfried, the comedian. Mm. And then we had uh, about solar energy, um, Jonathan Scott's power trip, one of the property brothers. Uh, we were going around the country for about a year talking to different communities about rooftop solar and exploring, well, why does do the big energy companies have such an issue with personal rooftop solar. Um, mm. The answer there should be pretty clear. It's about power, literally mm, <laughs> and yep. figuratively. Um, and then right before the pandemic, I uh, started to freelance, a very strange time to choose to start to freelance. So I went out <laughs> on my own, um, did some random uh, directing, producing gigs. And then Neil uh, and I heard about the competition La Maestra, which the Paris Philharmonic puts on every two years um, for female orchestra conductors. And he's like, I think you should direct this one. Again, something I never thought about doing. Um, it was just sort of placed in my path and I said yes to it. Um, and then um, I've known Charity for years and yeah, the rest is the rest is history. That's what brings us to today. I love that. And Charity, do you want to give a little background on on your journey? Yes, um, I uh, was born. <laughs> you were born. You were. <laughs> you were. <laughs> um, so I'm uh, I'm from England. I um, went to drama school here at the Oxford School of Drama, which is a very small drama school and very good. And um, then was terrified coming to London because it was such a small place and we, we did so much kind of, I think, good work uh, mm. uh, at that place. But it wasn't really kind of in, in the public eye. And then um, I just remember that big move coming to London was kind of frightening the idea that you would actually have to get a job, not yeah. just be working with people that you know really well. And also it was only acting. I didn't do any work on making theatre companies or filmmaking particularly. It was just solid acting. So the first part of my career was definitely focused on that. Um, it, I wasn't successful at the beginning. I didn't get a, an agent straight away. I didn't get a job straight away. But I was really keen and genuinely interested in what other people were doing. And my drama school was very good about the fact that you're coming from a small place. Not everybody will know you. If you really care about what you're doing and you go out and you see other things, that will just naturally lead you to a, a kind of um, a collaboration with, with someone. It was the hope. And that's kind of what happened. I ended up doing really small theatre for hardly any money for, for quite a long time, quite a few years. And um, it kind of built and built and built. And um, and then, you know, uh, one year I kind of got a decent agent and, and was starting to kind of go for more TV stuff, which luckily 
I managed to land and I did a few period dramas. I did Sense and Sensibility, Any Human Heart, Wolf Hall. Um, I'm doing a show at the moment, um, uh, which is called The Great. Um, and I've been very, very lucky as an actor and um, I've managed to, to kind of do the dream of doing theatre and film and TV and I try to to try to keep it varied because I enjoy I enjoy the physicality and the different kind of technical um, challenges of all of them. And as I mentioned before, about ten, maybe ten, twelve years ago, I started getting interested in the mechan- much more interested in the mechanics of how things work. As an actor, um, you really are often the last person to know anything. You <laughs> are often given a script that's not real when you audition, especially yeah. if you're auditioning for a massive thing. You sometimes might get the real script, but you won't really know probably what the director's intentions are or the filmmaker's intentions, you know, and that's fine. You're, you're there to kind of do that particular job of acting. But I was kind of more interested than that. And so whenever I was on set, like my first really big job, Sense and Sensibility, um, I was in practically every day. And, um, you know, I got to know the crew really well, as you do. And, you, you, you know, you're there. You might be wearing a kind of crazy costume or something, but you're like, He's, I'm sitting down having mm-hmm. a cup of tea and these people are moving all of these cables. Let me help you. And then you get a strict kind of absolutely don't do that. And it feels so <laughs> weird. You're like, well, I've, I've got arms, you know, I can help. Why? You know, it's not going to. And of course you, you know, realize don't one, don't get the, co- really it's practical. Don't get the costume dirty. You've got to be ready for when you film. So you can't be tired or messy or dirty or not in the right room obviously stick to your job but i just found it really interesting what everybody else was doing well, also just the fact you might get hurt and the whole daggum completion bond is based exactly. on you not being hurt exactly you know exactly I focus on the long game you know but, though. she always does want so to, i can tell it too <laughs> i'm like yeah. closing my i'm like envisioning her lifting a table with crew and I jules uh my hands are playing in the background yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, i got to experience it firsthand we did a film festival together um in sheffield and i swear shoot everywhere i look she was just, just over there handling something handling something handling something here's water here's this wait where's the photographer like boom 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 so with someone whose brain works at like, all right, I am looking for the problem to solve. Yes, I can imagine that being on a set with Charity is like she wants to help every department. And she probably could have given the, uh, the goal. Charity, what's your resting heart rate? quite <laughs> high. I don't really relax very often, I have to say. I'm not, but I do have that brain. But it does, it can, it can cause anxiety too because you can't, you know, you can't fix everything or do everything as you were just mm-hmm. saying earlier. True. Um, but I do, I love film festivals, particularly because when I was at drama school, I worked, and actually for many years after that, um, due to the not getting many jobs straight away, I worked in cinemas and I worked both front of house and also eventually in, in a cinema company's um, kind of head office, literally just doing admin for them. So it's these kind of experiences that kind of get you into the headspace of, um, you know, where other people might be, how other people might be viewing your film. You know, as Maggie's was kind of touched on earlier with this, the, you know, the notion of kind of going to Cuba to film something that that um, might be extremely difficult for Cuban people to um, want to hear and yet ne- very necessary. Um, you've got to be thinking really far ahead. And I wonder, Maggie, if this might 
you know, if you, you might have some special skills here because of working in publicity really, really far ahead in the film process, you're aware right at that very early process how it's going to, how it might come over, how, what's the culture mm. that the film's going to come out in two years' time? What's the culture going to be like? Is it going to be the right time for the film? And sometimes you have to say, oh, it's just not, I'm just too far ahead. It's not the right time yet. And then, or am I the person that's making it the right time? Is it something that's going to change perceptions? In which case, probably Maggie's work, I would say, is a prime example of that. And Maestro is one of those that is exactly the right time. This is the, exactly the right time to be talking about female conductors and women taking leadership roles in the workplace and, is, and, and talking about yeah. the culture and the history that has brought us to this position, whereby you suddenly realise, which you'll know from watching the film, Chris, that only 3%, under 3% of female conductors in, in high-up leadership positions is, is the kind of current case. And, and our film, Maggie's film, is not only about that fact, it's joyfully about the behind the scenes of, of female conductors and what their lives are like and this competition in Paris. Well, but, um, you know, that's what I, I wanted I, to I, ask I, you I, ladies about though, that, that very part. And, and by the way, speaking of Cuba, before I forget, um, it was Zaire Montez who we interviewed and who oh. filmed in, in Cuba and she is amazing. And she has a filmmaking partner and they just, literally pump out feature films that are fun. It's, it's amazing their process. So check out Zyra Montez. But I, I was Thank curious you. about that because I did watch the documentary. I think it was wonderful. It was beautiful. Like I said, like from a standpoint of me being a musician myself, one of the concepts that stood out to me was this idea of musicality because I will learn how to play songs uh, for people when I have dinner parties or when people come over or just for my own enjoyment that are in pop culture. And the first thing you do is you just learn the notes you just play the notes. Like, what is it? What is it? But, but it's not a song yet. It, it, it there's nothing, um, how can I explain it? There's nothing to it. it you just played the chords that you, no one's going to feel anything. And then once you have those chords and melodies committed to memory, then you can add your own musicality in it. You can make it your own. You can change the dynamic. You can change the pacing, the speed. You can add notes that aren't there. You can take away notes that are there or supposed to be there. And now it's become something. Now you've turned it into something. And I love that explanation in the documentary. Uh, I guess my question is, how did you guys get access to La Maestra? How were you able to film these women doing, uh, you know, uh, this competition? Uh, why did they let you guys in and have such sort of unf unfettered, unfiltered access? Well, I'm handing over to Maggie because this is all Maggie. I came to the process later in the filmmaking. Maggie oh, okay. did all of So um, access is everything for documentary filmmaking. If you don't have access, you don't have a film. Um, so the first mm. thing when you find a topic, the first thing you have to do is figure out who the gatekeepers are. And in this case, it's a massive cultural institution that is the Paris Philharmonic. So one of the most lauded cultural institutions in the world was the gatekeeper for this. And um, they don't know who I am. I unfortunately don't speak French. It was important for me to hire people who did speak French and to hire French people. I learned that very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, and then it was a matter of them saying yes to the project, right? Yes to, okay, this is a competition and you're asking to have cameras there. Our first responsibility is to the artists. We want to make sure you're not going to get in the way. 
So there was probably, I think it was about nine months of, of back and forth calls. The French aren't very quick at responding to things. There's always a lot of <laughs> you know, weekends. Weekends are sacred. Uh, there's a lot of holidays. And it's just, there's also a lot of layers, especially in a bureaucratic system like the, a cultural institution like that, a lot of people have to approve. Okay. So it was working through that. If anyone listening to this is thinking about producing anything in France and you're not French, get yourself a French lawyer immediately. An American lawyer will only make things harder for you. As soon as we got our French oh, wow. entertainment attorney, it went from it went from like just very dry calls to is how's the weather today? How are you doing? <laughs> like, I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. I was supposed to get a French lawyer from day one, understood six months later. Um, mm -hmm. And then it was a matter of, okay, there are 14 people who were chosen to participate in the competition. Now it's a matter of getting access to them. So I wrote a personal letter explaining what my intentions were, asking if they would be interested, um, all but one was yes, absolutely. Let's get on that that Zoom pre-interview and let's meet. Um, that fourteenth person eventually came around, and then it was a matter of meeting these people, like we are talking right now, over a computer screen and trying to get a sense of them as a person, sense of them, uh, of their story, uh, and then in regards to well how did you choose who to follow? Um, we were working with a limited palette, which oftentimes in any creative endeavor you are. There's a bunch of different elements to, to making anything that's creative. And sometimes having limited colors to work with is helpful. In this case, the pandemic was something that told us who we, and who, who we could and could not see. Mm. So some countries were closed. There is a woman in Hong Kong I was desperate to go and, and spend time with, but the country was closed because of the pandemic. We also had um, budget limitations. It's not like we had our full budget right up front. It was piecemealed. And every single time we got a little chunk, it was like, okay, who's available? Where can we go? Um, and so we had to work with that limitation as well. So we had COVID, we had budget, and then we ended up with, um, seven people that I spent time with and then five um, that you see on screen made the cut. Then there's that other element of um, access, which is how do you get someone who you've never met before to allow you inside their heart and soul? Yeah, and, have them open up and be so raw in front right. of you. Yeah. And in that regards, um, I think it's interesting. I don't want to, uh, I, I want charity to be able to speak to this because I swear that having started as an actor and having that training of how to basically soften yourself so that you can be open to somebody else. Um, like if you've met, if you're meeting someone, I, I blind date or whatever, and you want someone to be vulnerable, it's like, you have to make yourself vulnerable. I'm a big believer in that that might be controversial in talking to maybe some other documentary filmmakers because there is this 
element of sort of protecting each other as well, because we're talking about real life. It's not a script. Um, but for me, especially if I have very limited time with someone, in some cases, I only had five days with mm. with some of these women. We didn't have an opportunity to build a long term relationship. You would never know that long. watching the documentary. So kudos. Right. Yeah. And I think it's because you just have to be so present and so open to then invite someone else to also reciprocate that. Um, yeah. So I feel like my actor skills, when people think of, oh, okay, well, that's a facade. No, it's actually about making yourself open and vulnerable and present. So that came into play. And so you and Charity sort of like, Charity, were you like instructing them not to look directly at the camera unless the the setup was for them to look directly at the camera like i wasn't how, there during that i wasn't there during that part of the process but oh i thought maggie was saying that you helped in that regard no, I think maggie oh, was she's saying talking about being an actor yeah but yeah coming I, from I'm saying us, yes yeah. yeah i mean i do agree and when i i i've uh, doctor i've directed a, a short film documentary that i also produced um co-directed and Yes, exactly that. I think sometimes where it it doesn't help is that I'm used to being in a kind of quite a sensitive, vulnerable state when I'm working. And I can sometimes be a little bit too conscious of how the subject is feeling. Mm. And I remember my producer at the time, Helen Bolter, on this film, We ma I made a short film called Memento Vitae which was about your relationship with your clothes. And I was interviewing an, an elderly <laughs> lady um, who's a fantastic, bright, creative woman and um, had loads. And, you know, we were getting really wonderful um, material of her just being herself. And, um, and I remember Helen sort of saying, you've got to, <laughs> she kind of said, you've got to be more brutal. I don't agree with being brutal, but I you know what she mean, meant in terms of we had a day and she wasn't really very um we we discussed that we would be talking about her relationship with her her husband who had passed away with the clothes that she had kept and that was the purpose of the documentary was to talk about the feelings that are held with material objects and why we keep them and why they're special and what they mean to us and what the memories are attached to the objects. And, and it would have been very easy to, to not actually go there and not ask the difficult questions because I, I felt for her so much, you know, and it took, it took the producer at the time to say, you've got to ask, you know, you've got to go further. And that, I mm -hmm. think that as an actor, I think that that can be harder because you, you, you're not as detached or well, it's a skill I have to learn is to kind of be better at, um, you know, not that I'm directing in this case, but, but yeah, in, in, in um, answer to Maggie kind of. Yeah. It's a really difficult balance because you, I'm talking about like really wanting to connect on a really deep emotional level. But at the same time, you also have to think of the film and like mm -hmm. the practical elements of it and what is good for the film. And I, I, I so one of my producers who was on set with me occasionally, Neil, I would be I'm kind of an overly empathetic person anyway, and I'm all, I'm also a Libra. So it's like, <laughs> who, everyone feeling okay? Everyone feeling okay? Everyone fine? Um, and it's like, well, that's not my job. My job is also to the film and what the film needs. And if we're, you know, running behind schedule, we have to think about that too. We've got crew. There's a lot to think about. Um, 
Yes. So it's but both of these things. Talking about the very formative moments of, of getting to know your subject, that, that line of honest and clear communication about what the purpose of the film is and also integrity in the work that you're making. And if you've communicated that correctly, you don't need to feel worried or upset if somebody becomes emotional because you know that they understand fully why they're talking to you and you can bring them back to that. You have a duty to bring them back to that. You don't want them to be saying things that they're uncomfortable with, but you do want them to be truthful in the moment about the subject matter that you've agreed to explore. So yeah, it's having those kind of two hats at the same time, isn't it? And it's so worth it. Moments in Maestra. I don't want to spoil anything, but there are some real kind of highs and lows. It's a competition yeah. and you're, you're dealing with women that absolutely feel like it's a make or break situation. They've, they've put their lives on hold to, to go to a different country or perhaps the country of your birth as one of the um, women we follow is the case for them. She's from Paris. And, um, but you know, staying with them in those moments of difficulty is, is what makes the film. Yeah. I, I really related to the competition part of it and I'm a big softy anyway, but there was a moment in the, in the documentary where the winner, the ultimate winner, which I won't give away, uh, talked about what winning would, would mean, you know, and, and why. And I caught myself almost starting to cry at that because <laughs> that's like been my whole life. You know, like it, it really spoke to, and I know I'm not a, a female conductor, but you don't have to be that to, to relate to what these, these women are going through and how much it means to them. And just the unfairness is the wrong word, but just because all these women went on to, to do amazing things post competition, but the sense that this is it, like I, I could win or lose it, the competition is so tight that that I could win or lose based on what I'm wearing up there as I'm conducting. It could be that tight and 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 that could send that could spiral my life or send my life into the stratosphere in my own mind. You know, I'm putting myself in the shoes of the of the women who are competing. In their mind they're like I win this and my life goes one way. I lose this for whatever reason and my life goes another way. And I I was sort of fascinated by this idea of the role the orchestra itself played in the competition, because I've been on teams my entire life, both professionally and, 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 and personally. And I just know that there is this subconscious performance bias that can happen where for whatever reason, XYZ player or, um, you know, what coworker, whatever, just works a little harder, plays a little harder for this particular leader. And you just start to wonder, okay, what what happens if they find a conductor they really gel with and like they can't help but play and be a little bit more perfect for that that particular person so it, it there's a lot of layers to to the film i will say learning what you guys are talking about is very difficult it takes a lot of time to sort of modulate yourself to fit the the people you're you're talking to and trying to you know, get them to open up to you and and make the film as good as it can be looking out for the film. But, but one tool to speed up that process is, is a disc profile. Do you guys, have you guys heard of the disc profile or like, um, sort of that disc self-assessment before it's spelled D I S. I don't think so. No, I highly, highly recommend it. You you end up with basically a 60 page book on who you are and it, right. And, and it's so accurate 
uh, as long as you're honest. Um, and I don't know why you wouldn't be, it's, it's your dime. Um, but you, uh, you get this, this book back that tells you, here's your strengths. Here's your communication style. Here's the danger in your communication style. And here's some tools that you can use to modulate your communication style, depending on who you're talking to. And so my life before I started Bonsai Creative, before, um, you know, being a producer before our feature films and all that stuff that we did, I was, um, in healthcare tech and education. And one of the things that I learned was to modulate myself based on the type of personality the the other individual had. And, and they're basically fall into these different groups. Like there's a person who's a talker. And so if they're a talker, you have to change and be a listener. There's a person who is a doer with a doer. You get out of their way and you let them feel like they're in charge because they're a type person that wants to be in charge. Then you have a person named a supporter. When you have a supporter, those are, those are bridge makers. Those are people who link you with the people who make decisions and make things with supporter actually can't do anything themselves or they don't have the power and they're too passive aggressive or not aggressive, but just too passive and shy to actually do anything themselves. So, so you have to let them build you a bridge where you can walk across and find a way to communicate with them. So there are all these cool different ways that we as producers can learn to modulate ourselves to get what we want out of that cast or even the crew. So I highly recommend that if, if you need to speed up the process of learning that, because otherwise you just have to learn it on set and, you know, make 10 movies before you get it right. I think it's really good. Um, I mean, like I'm speaking now as a 42 year old and I'm a very different person to who I was when I was in drama school. And in drama school, we did a lot of what you're talking about. So you do these exercises and the first whole year of my, my drama school training was Mm. mostly about trying to work out who you are, who are you, what do you do? What do you say? What do you like? What's your physical habit? How do you relate to people? How do you get what you want? And, you know, you've your classmates watching you and analyzing you and telling you this stuff. And you and then and the idea is that you learn who you are so much that you're able to kind of let that go. And then you start looking at these characters, ca- characteristics in other people. But you mm. have to be able to understand who, where you're coming from first. But what's funny talking to you now is that I realize I'm a different person now. So I've done all this work at drama school. But when do you actually <laughs> check in on yourself and say, but how do I how do I go through life now? Is it the same? Yeah. And I and I might be kind of going along under a certain understanding of what I'm like and what I'm doing and what I need to do, but it might be different now. So I think it's a good call to actually find a way to to check in on yourself, really for kind of any working uh, environment actually, and be like, what's my what are my hangups? What are my triggers? You know? Yeah, I think it'd be great. It, it's fun and it's a lot more official than like. Enneagram or right. uh, some of these yeah. other ones that are sort of pop yeah. culture tests. The, this is like yeah, official. Yeah. It's like what corporations use. Yeah. And um, cool. it, it, I think you should check it out. Now I know you're tight on time and you have to leave us pretty soon here, Charity. So um, this sucks. We have to have you back on for a round two, of, uh, which is we do that all the time. But before you go, yeah, can you tell everybody where they can find you on social media, on the internet, and maybe even see some of your work? beyond so this documentary you can find the film maggie you say we can find the film um right now we have an instagram page uh, we're newly out of the gate so we're still building our profiles but our instagram is at maestra movie 
M-A-E-S-T-R-A movie. Beautiful. And then Charity, anything uh, you want to share personally? Yeah. You can find, I'm building a website actually. (laughs) I want to bring all these different elements together. Um, But I'm I'm just not an Instagram as me. So just Charity Wakefield on Instagram. Instagram's my main thing now. I find it the the nicest kind of community. um, Yeah. It's, it's, it depends on like what you have to share the most, right? Yeah. Like if you're, if you're sharing visuals, why wouldn't you be on Instagram? It makes yeah. perfect sense. So go follow her. It's going to be a fun and interesting follow and charity. We will have you back on very, very soon. You've been incredible. I, I appreciate the time. Thank you. So nice to chat. This has been so yep. lovely. Take care. Likewise. Bye. Talk soon. Peace. Papa bear. Why don't you come on? This is a nice segue and give us, a thing we should know. All right, Chris. Um, I think you're going to be exempt from this one because it's a, a question that's more appropriate for Maggie. Mm-hmm. And uh, But you're welcome to take a stab at it. I will. Okay. Who was the first woman to ever direct major orchestras? Oh, my God. Now, um, we, can't, we, we can't say the answer yet, Maggie. But um, you're right, Papa Bear. I would have not, I, I, I would guess uh, I would literally make up a name It would just, <laughs> and just see if it sounds well, like a German uh, woman's name. It, it was <laughs> Olga. It was, it was Olga Schmidt. <laughs> no, well, Olga I mean, Kleiner Schmidt. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it would be unfair to you unless it was brought up in the documentary. I haven't seen the documentary. Well, and you have, um, so. No, it wasn't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was. So um, Maggie might know this, but if she does, I, we will find out in a moment and um, move forward. But Papa Bear, thank you for dropping a thing we should know. And this is something I feel like I should know. I want to know this. I'm a curious mind. I'm not um, sure it would be something you would. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. What are you, Maggie, thinking about the strike, by the way, I wanted to just get your thoughts on how producers seem to be stuck in the middle. Like, so the thing we've gotten from the guild, the producers guild is, Hey, we stand in solidarity with WGA and SAG. And that's true. But then we also are the middlemen and women like the intermediaries between network studios and the cast and crew. And so and I, don't, I just feel like, you know, the directors negotiated their deal. Ayatsi's not striking. And here we are um, with sort of a pseudo guild. And and I don't think people bring us up very often in the process. Uh, what do you feel? Well, I'm a, I am a member of SAG-AFTRA. I am not part of even any better. other guild. Uh, I have a spouse who's an Ayatsi. Um, mm-hmm. So... Well, the one thing I will say is, so when I first came to LA and I was first starting this journey, it was months before the first massive strike. So it's a very interesting time to sort of look back at what our industry looked like then, what it looks like now. In the meantime, we have had the explosion of the streamers. Um, And yes, these strikes are really important I also want to make it clear that nonfiction 
you would think it is assumed by many people when I talk about the strike that, oh, you're a nonfiction. It must be so great. Like now we need more nonfiction, right? To fill all of these. And unfortunately, that's what we all thought was going to happen. Like, I thought right, this was right. going to be an incredible time to sell my film. Four months ago, I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, I don't want this strike to happen because friends, family, my own household is suffering from it. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, the strikes are important, of course. I mean, in solidarity all the way. Uh, but I thought, oh, well, we're going to need more nonfiction. That's, that's, my, that's what I do. It's my bread and butter. I've got this incredible film that's ready for the market and it's affecting everyone. Everyone is losing yeah. jobs. Everyone doesn't know what their budgets or mandates are. And at the moment, um, I mean, people are going to be listening back to this episode, so I don't know where we'll be when you do, but at the moment, Hollywood's on ice, it's totally on ice. Yep. And I need to make it very clear to our, to everyone that, at the moment, right now, in end of summer 2023, documentary filmmakers, uh, nonfiction film, we don't have a union. We have very, very special needs as a community, and we do not have a union. So even though it's very, uh, it's, it's same skill sets, um, we're working for the most part as, as freelancers, uh, we don't have pensions. We don't have safety nets. Um, there is no union currently for for nonfiction for documentary filmmaking, and I feel like that has going to change because it has to change. Um, yeah. But these are conversations that are just starting to happen right now. So it is important. Again, I am a member of SAG-AFTRA. Of course, it's important to be in solidarity with my peers, with the sort of larger family that is our industry. And at the same time, it's difficult to hold that space knowing that as a nonfiction, as a documentary filmmaker, I don't have any room for negotiation. There is no union. Um, so it's a very, very strange time. I also have just this strange feeling that the networks know how long they can hold out. There's this feeling of an element of starving people out. Um, yeah, there is, crazy. I think it's pretty a well-known fact that a lot of this is a tax write-off and up to mm -hmm. a certain point, it's a tax write-off after that it's damaging. So I don't know what that point is that and but to me that's that feels like a starve out point it's like okay well we can starve them out until we get here because that's all a tax write-off then we'll talk about moving forward um in the meantime uh you have you have people that are really scared um so when a whole and i mean your listeners know this because of their interest in listening to this podcast but of course it doesn't affect just the obvious people. It affects, it affects everyone down the, down the chain. Yeah. Um, but yes, it's a very strange time being showing up right now, representing my feature film maestra. I'm talking to you as a documentary filmmaker and it's a very strange 
time to be talking about the strike in my current position. I'm not talking as a union member. I'm talking about this part of my creative life, which is the main part of my creative life where I don't have representation. You know, it's interesting. We interviewed Jeff Clanagan of um, Heartbeat Entertainment, Kevin Hart's company. He's the president Mm -hmm. of that company. And we interviewed him, I think, one week before the strike, back a little bit before May. And his take on it then was, oh, we'll just pivot to reality. Now, he's an executive, right? Oh, we'll just pivot. And Mm -hmm. I would love to talk to him again and see, to your point, did that play out like he expected? Uh, And is that playing out as he expected? Because I think that pivot is probably going to end up being harder than anticipated, uh, to your point. And what you said about non-representation makes so much sense um, to me because in the Producers Guild, we have a Slack channel where we all kind of get together and have community. And almost every message is about documentary filmmaking. And now that makes so much sense to me because you don't have representation and you're not part of a union, you know, you don't have anybody negotiating your behalf. So you really have to lean back on your fellow documentary producers for every element of the production phase and, and process. And uh, you, I think you should join the producers guild for that reason, just because you will find community around documentary filmmaking in particular, because basically Every PGA member that isn't making a giant movie like Oppenheimer or Barbie is making a documentary film there. Well, we have the document. I'm a member of the Documentary Producers Alliance, so um, oh, I, don't, I don't know too much about the PGA, but it's not like the DGA or WGA or SAG. After no, it's, it's not like no. it's not like you're a member and then you get, get health insurance, your health insurance, and your pension. <laughs> yeah. It's, Exactly. They're working on it, but that's not the case right now. Yeah. Yeah. So we have, we definitely have a long way to go, especially since documentary has in the last 10 years or right. Is that about right? Yeah. No more. When was the last strike? 2007? 2008, seven, eight. Yeah. Seven and eight. Yeah. They Um, almost always align with uh, financial crises, by the way. Interesting. I think the only one that didn't was the one of, in 1960, mm. but all the other ones were, were around. So the one in 88 was right after black Monday. Um, all, all the strikes that have happened have happened when there's been an economic downturn. So basically these corporations start to tighten their belts and get really nervous and scared, get anxiety about the state of either the country or the economy. And then the taxpayers for that end up being the labor force. Right. And then the labor force is like, what the heck? And then they're, and then because they're represented by a union, they're like, okay, let's strike. And it happens, you know, every time. So um, that that's kind of that's kind of where it's at. So I, I you are allowed to, but not being represented, you are allowed to talk about. And that's I guess the good news here is like you are allowed to talk about your your documentary. You are allowed to talk about you know Maestra. Uh, without feeling like you're, you know, scabbing at all or, or doing anything you shouldn't be doing, which I think is great. Right. Yeah. So, um, it's, it's a very interesting time to try and well, first of all, going back to like where actually let, yeah, let's help me get back into it. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it. I mean, like I, I, I'm, I am, I'm glad you can, you can talk about it because, um, 
Oh, oh, with the strike. You, you, you're right. Yeah. Oh, yes. and you're, and, and, but here's the thing. You were saying it trickles down to everybody. Well, yeah. it trickles down to us. Who do we bring on as guests if they can't talk right. about their stuff? Oh, my gosh. If they can't so pr- weird. promote true. anything. So we're that's affected right. by it. The longest strike in history was 22 weeks. And we're going to get wow. close to that here. And so, that's so like we didn't at yeah. the time, we didn't think it was going to affect us at all. And we're finding, okay, the only people that can talk on the record like and feel completely comfortable are documentary yeah. filmmakers and people in reality are people who are working behind the scenes um, outside of that promo space. And, and now there are even mandates yeah. and rules for podcasters. Our, our friend uh, uh, and colleague and friend of the podcast, AJ Fuhrman, who, who does uh, PR, just laid down a bunch of rules for podcasters. And I'm like, I don't even know what the rules are. Like, what am I allowed to do? Say, who am I allowed to bring on? So I think it's yeah. an interesting topic and you're right. It does trickle down, but I'm, I am glad we're, we're able to talk about, about your doc. Um, well, I grew up by the way, sitting on my dad's lap. He would let me stay up late from time to time. And I would sit beside him or sit on his lap and watch David Letterman in the early eighties. And, um, I, that's the kind of comedy, the type of monologue type of tone and pace I grew up used to and understanding why that was funny. And, here he is as an executive producer of this documentary. So I'm just curious, you were talking about the funding coming in in bits. Was David always there from the beginning or did he come in sort of in the back end, help you with finishing funds? How did he become like the lead EP on this thing? Um, So my producer, Neil Berkeley, was working with Worldwide Pants on some other developing some other projects. And uh, so Worldwide Pants was the first place we took Maestro to and they were the first supporters in. Um, So that was, yeah, they were the first money in. That's amazing. But then I do have to say immediately following that uh, was Jamie Wolf and Foothill Entertainment who came in and matched that. And that's what helped start our journey. Um, And then which was, you know, what any, any small, any, the beginning, the beginning money is the most important part. Um, Agreed. So it get it gets, it's what gets you jump started. And so we got our jump start, and then we were off to the races from there. Um, but it was a, it was not easy. It was a slog. Like every single step was a slog. One would think that this was uh, a sort of slam dunk topic. Um, Conductors were in the zeitgeist, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. And then we were talking about, we were just out of sort of the, the Me Too, um, we're, Me Too was very much in our culture. So talking about um, women's issues, which this film is about uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have music. So you've got, you've got, you've got music, you've got, um, women and you've got a competition. It's a competition. People love competition documentaries. So we thought it was a slam dunk and we would, um, go to various production companies looking for financing. And oftentimes I would be told, um, yeah, it's it's great, but you're a first time director. Um, not sure about, you know, a little uneasy on that. I mean, they would never say that outright, but we did Mm. get a or to, to me. Um, but we would get a, 
first time director pass or we're not too sure classical music is really for our audience. And it's just like these, proving this wrong um, time and time again. And here we are with, uh, with a fully fleshed out film. So you would think, and look, I've, I've been an EP on several films and an investor in a variety of markets, frankly. And when the first money in is David Letterman and worldwide pants, greatest production name ever, by the way, you would think that everyone would be clamoring to, to invest in the, in the film. Um, but I can just tell you from other investing circles that there is a bit of sort of an inside baseball hatred, not hatred, that's the wrong word, but, but there's a trepidation in, in film investment and, and smart investors, quote unquote, to be in the club of considered being considered a smart investor, you, you shouldn't say that you invested in a film. And so I think, you know, did you get a sense of that where, where there were just investors that were like, you know, gosh, I, you know, I, I want to try to invest in something that will, will hundred, 100 X, um, versus well, David, this, so or, David Letterman or, was the first, uh, David Letterman was the first, uh, financier right. that trusted the film, trusted me telling this story. And he is, uh, in a point where he wants to make content that is good for the world. And he happens to be a classical music fan. So those two things came together. He Perfect saw investor. Yep. Well, a random investor, if we're talking about a film about, uh, female empowerment and women in, uh, positions that are usually historically the podiums have men, white men, Mm -hmm. that come from a sense of privilege. It is very interesting that we do have our first uh, financier in being a white man of privilege. And to mm -hmm. his credit, he um, are, are basically our whole film. Uh, our film is an ecosystem of what society should be. If we don't want to be having to make movies about women breaking glass ceilings anymore. Like yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't want to have to make those movies. I'm not in, we have to make those movies. I don't think, I don't want to speak for my the whole half of the population, but I don't want <laughs> to have to make those movies. Um, I want to tell stories of interesting people mm -hmm. who happen to be women, not because they're women, their stories need to be told. So we, yes, this film, this film was not made possible because of um, fem big female-led production companies in Hollywood who talk about the need to support women filmmakers telling female stories. That's not how this film was made. This film was made by the first money in of a privileged white man in power and a production company owned by... Neil Berkeley, who is also a man who is all <laughs> like, it's, yet it was, it was, here is an opportunity. Here is the support. Here's the autonomy. Do your thing. And that, the, that here's the support and here's your autonomy is critical 
to be able to have the vulnerability, the sensitivity, I think that you, you're, you've experienced watching the film. And that needs to happen time and time again. Um, and in addition, there's a whole army of women who also supported this film. As I said, um, well, Dave was the first money in. It was matched by um, Jamie Wolf, who's been an EP in, on a lot of my favorite documentaries. Was it easy to get those funds because David was first in? I guess is the no, question. No, not at all. No. And, no, and, no, and, no. and was your expectation that it'd be easier? Because I, oh I hear you saying it wasn't. But did you think, damn, we landed David Letterman, so now everybody's going to want to invest? Of course. When we when when that when that deal was signed, my thought was the film's financed because <laughs> everyone's going to come running, right? Because mm-hmm. all the funds are going to be answered, right? All the doors are going to open, right? Like, of course I thought that. And it was the exact opposite. It was, uh, I think about the financing for Maestra as a golden carrot on a stick. It was like always there because it was always like, it's going to happen. People are so excited about it. And it was just a, it was, I knew it was going to be good. I don't always feel that way about projects that turn out to be really great. This one was, I was confident it was going to be good. Mm-hmm. And I was confident it was going to be made one way or another. And the financing was always, yes, but can you do this first? Yes, but can you uh, give us a profile on this person? Yes, but can you please assemble this? Um, like we need a little bit more and then we'll feel comfortable saying yes. Mm-hmm. So it was always chasing something that was just out of reach until it wasn't out of reach. Um, and we didn't have financing to crew up and, and film the main event, which was in Paris, which in, required more than, but we did it with three camera crews backstage. I could have done with a fourth, um, but couldn't, but for with budget. Um, so a 16 person crew, mostly French speaking, we had to do that in under a month. We had to crew that up in under a month. No one on our team had produced an international shoot before, much less one of this size. Um, so it was an incredible team effort to get this done. Um, but it was always, we just knew it was going to be good. <laughs> I love when you have those feelings because I, I know exactly what you're yeah. talking about. It's like the it, it's undescribable, yeah. like our our um, indescribable. Like you, 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 I don't know how to put it into words. Uh, why you get those feelings, but you just know. Like when you just know, it's 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 almost like a basketball player with a hot hand. You just like you don't know what you're feeling, but you know if you shoot, you're going to score. And you scored with this. It was great. I, I don't know if you're if you're able to say, but can you give us like a ballpark of what the a budget would be like or what your budget was like for this film? And did you and did you strike you it accurately at first? And or did you have to go up after you started shooting? Um, I can tell you it should have been one point two, and I can tell okay. you it was not. <laughs> okay. Okay. Got I, it. I I can tell you that I own a camera package that I didn't know how to use before this film because I had to learn. Okay. So you directed and DP'd this? I was one of many 
camera operators. I was okay. definitely not. It's much too beautiful to say <laughs> that it was that I was the DP on it, but I was one of many camera operators. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So how does how do notes work? This is just not this is just for me, honestly. I maybe the audience likes this or or not, but how does it work as the director when you're getting notes on a documentary versus traditional notes that you would have gotten on a feature film? So documentaries come together in the edit. Uh, a documentary right. is essentially written in the edit. You go out with a, you, you, ha you have to have a structure in mind. You have to have an intention. And then because it's a living, breathing creature, the documentary tells you what it also needs to be. And a lot mm. of the times that communication with this creature is happening in, in the edit. It's happening in the field as you're watching things unfold. Um, you're watching things that you thought were going to happen, not happen, or surprised by things um, that you never knew would be parts of this film or themes of this film. Um, mm -hmm. But it's in the edit where you realize, oh, well, I... In, in my narrative journey here in this arc, this chunk that is my absolute favorite thing has to go away. It just has to. Uh, it starts uh. to make itself obvious. It's not like a, a script where you know what works and doesn't work before you film it. Right. The notes is are, are essential. It's essential to get people to watch a a film in its rough cut and along this along the way. And then you have to figure out what works and doesn't work for the film yourself. So some of my absolute favorite parts of this film, I was told to cut in note sessions Ooh. and it made sense logically why that note was given, but it was a feeling thing. Like mm -hmm. I like this yeah. and it just had to get to a point where it was so because it was my first time directing, not first time producing, first time directing, I had to start to be okay with saying, I'm just going to keep it in. Why? Because I like it. Yeah. And if I like it, someone else is going to like it. Turns out most people like it. And now sharing um, a cinema space with an audience and having people laugh when you were laughing and crying when you were crying and showing you different colors that you didn't even really know that were would come out. It's an incredible experience. Um, there's this great meme going around. It's a pizza mm -hmm. and you've, it's a picture of a pizza and part of it is M&Ms. Part of it is like a giant, like roast chicken. Part of it's pepperoni. Um, and it's like, this is what it looks like when you get notes from and take notes from everybody. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Right? It's this, it's this, this, this gross thing. Um, so it, it's up to the director, obviously, to pick and choose what they feel works for the film. And it's also really important to really, really hear people's notes and try them and experiment with them um, to a degree. For this film, I started getting, it was when I started getting, um, contradictory notes that got really difficult. You would have one person saying they loved it and the exact same moment saying that does not belong in this film. And oh, like, man. what do you do when you're getting contradictory notes from your, from your core team? It was, it was not easy. It's almost like your vision is the dough in that pizza analogy. It's like, 
the notes or the toppings, the stuff you see, and it's shrouding your original vision for the project. And you got to figure out how to get back to the foundational thing so you don't lose your interest in the project itself and become somebody else's vision. It's such a tough thing. Um, so here we are. Uh, you, you did a great documentary. You made a great documentary. Everybody should watch it. Can you just talk about what's next for the, for the doc? Like what's your distribution plan? How do you plan on ROI in this thing? And, and when can we get to see it? Yeah, I'd like to know that too. Um, so it just premiered at Tribeca Film Festival in competition, which was incredible. We yep. won an audience award, which was incredible. Congrats. Um, uh, we then went on and had our international premiere in England, the Sheffield Documentary Fest, which was another incredible opp um, opportunity for the film. And it played DC. And now our next is this Saturday. We're in at Cape Cod at Woods Hole Film Festival. Um, really proud to be playing Sidewalk Film Fest in Birmingham, uh, Alabama, which and we're in competition there. Uh, that is uh, one of the most respected indie film fests in the States. And so we're really excited about that. And yeah, we've got invitations from film festivals all over the world. Um, we have concert halls all over the world saying we want to screen this film for audiences and have it's a amazing. talk back. Um, so there's this, there's this appetite of music schools are asking for it. People want to see this film. Um, the industry is on ice right now. Uh, having, trying to sell a film in this environment is is basically makes sense. The film was incredibly hard to make. It's still incredibly hard <laughs> to find distribution <laughs> for it. If this, I mean, I don't want to be, I, whether this sounds haughty or not, I firmly believe having been in this industry for a, a while now, that if this was three years ago, if this was pre pandemic, this film would have been snapped up very yeah. quickly and for the right amount of money. Um, but right now, everyone is not knowing exactly what it is they even can do. So we are still looking for distribution. Um, I mean, right now, my, my phone is just blowing up with, well, here's updates. Here's this. What do we do? It's all strategy. We can't do anything right now. Are effusive about this film and are like, it's going to find its right home. So I'm just holding yeah. on to that. Well, people have to understand, like, I'm not like buttering your ass here. Like this is a really good documentary. I'm not just saying it because you're like a guest on the podcast. You're a guest on the podcast because a documentary is awesome. And I think people think that I have to be nice to you. I don't have to be nice to you. I don't have to be saying these nice things. Like I really liked it. It's really good. It's really going to make it. It's really going to do great things out in the world. I would love to see it screen at this. There's a palace in Vienna called the Schönbrunn. I think that's how you pronounce it. Uh, producer Papa Bear, make, you know, correct me uh, if I'm wrong, but I think it's called the Schönbrunn Palace and they have an orchestra that plays inside of the palace every day. And how incredible would it be to screen it at this place that probably gets, I don't know, a hundred thousand people walk through it a day. Um, so yeah, you know, check that out if you want to. It's, 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 uh, that would be incredible. And then also, uh, I'm going to talk my own book here. So please you know, deal with me, tolerate me for a couple of minutes, please consider submitting it to the Nashville film festival. Uh, people don't know this, but Nashville is the second largest city for scoring and film. We have, uh, one of the best, um, 
grant programs for like if you I think if you spend 50 grand on your score, we give you 37 and a half percent back. Like it's insane. Uh, and then you're getting and this is the thing that people underrate. You're not getting a bunch of people who make beats like you're getting the world's best musicians when you come to Nashville. You're getting the world's best session musician. So your music's going to be through the roof great. And I think that's why it's been um, so popular. But hey, bring bring the music film to the music city. Like consider it. I mean, obviously it's a team effort, but, um, you know, uh, I, I would love to see it submitted there. I have a huge soft spot for Nashville. I've spent a lot of time there. I absolutely love it. At one point I thought I'd be one of the uh, – thousands of Californians moving there. <laughs> yeah, I do there's so it. many. Yeah. yeah. The next time you come, hit hit me up. I'll give you a key to the city. Excellent. I'll, I'll, I'll keep yeah, that. I can't, I, <laughs> I will yeah, keep it up. in mind. And then I can, I can introduce you to the film festival people here and like the indie film community here. I think they'd be honored to meet you and learn from you if, if they don't do it through this, through this podcast. Um, Papa Bear, why don't you come back on and uh, repeat this question for the audience. Okay. And, and we'll give, I've already given you my answer. My answer, like I said, is, is, and I, you don't know this about me, Maggie, but I'm mostly French German or German French. However, you, we would say that. And then I'm like 40% sub-Saharan African. So my mom was, is black and, and uh, my dad's white, obviously, but the, um, you know, French German. Uh, so I'm not saying anything wrong by saying that my cousin, Olga Kleiner uh, Schmidt, <laughs> Uh, is the first female uh, conductor. So that's my answer. But we'll repeat the question, Papa Bear, uh, and and then let Maggie give her best shot at this, assuming she did not Google. <laughs> that's what that <laughs> one minute was for. Uh, yeah. <laughs> who was the first woman to ever direct major orchestras? So in the film, we have Clara Schumann, who's one of the first female composers. Wow. I don't know if she ever conducted. There was a Brika who comes to mind. Uh, I forget where she's from. Uh, yes, those are my two best shots. Okay. Antonia, maybe? Antonia. <laughs> okay, so here's the answer I have. Famed French composer and teacher, Nadia Boulanger, she lived from 1887 oh. to 1979, was likely the first woman to ever direct major orchestras, including the Boston Symphony, New York Philharmonic, and the BBC Symphony, giving world premieres of works by both Stravinsky and Copland in the late 1930s. Thank you, oh, Papa is... Bear. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Producer Papa Bear, that is an awesome thing we should know. Say the name one more time. What's her name? Nadia Boulanger. Nadia. It's B-O-U-L-A-N-G-E-R. Well, I think Maggie has her next documentary. Uh, we need a documentary on Nadia Boulanger, obviously. Like, how could we not have one? How The world needs to know this woman's name. Well, you know? I'll tell you what. Wikipedia knows it. <laughs> 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 well said and thank you for another amazing thing we should know papa bear you're welcome
No, take care. That's beautiful. So Maggie, are you surprised that you heard this name before? Let me just ask you that. I have. Yes, it does ring a bell. Okay. Is she worth doing a documentary? I shouldn't put it that way, but is, is her life, you know, is it interesting? Does it like, what do you know about this woman? What Papa Bear said. <laughs> just, <laughs> all right. So we have some Googling to do when we, when we get off this, uh, this uh, conversation, when, when this podcast ends. And I think this is a great place to, to get some of that information and, and bring this thing to, to a close. It's been a ride. It's been so much fun. I can't thank you and Charity enough for dropping in and, and sharing your knowledge. And I want to have you guys back as many times as you want to come back and maybe even you guys individually for one of our sort of classic uh, conversations where we get into sort of an auto, audio resume of your entire life, which is always a good time and, and totally evergreen. But until then, can you tell us where we can find you on social media, on the internet, see some of your other work even, and, and how we can look out and support um, Maestra? Thank you. Um, Maestra is on Instagram at, at MaestraMovie dot well there is no dot <laughs> at moisture movie <laughs> m-a-e-s-t-r-a movie i am at my name maggie Contreras. two r's c-o-n-t-r-e-r-a-s um, and that's the same for my website it's just my name.com um i think you, you can stream the gilbert gottfried uh, uh documentary now you can stream Jonathan Scott's power trip now. Um, and Maestra will be coming to a city near you uh, soon at a film festival and hopefully very soon on your screen of choice at home. But follow our account to you. If you if you're really interested in knowing what the film's doing, uh, all of our updates will be on our Instagram account and things are are in development right now. I love it. And please uh, keep us posted on the developments. We're obviously following all those accounts on Instagram already. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing this thing blow up and, and succeed in the world. So thank again, you. thank you so much for your time. And for those who uh, don't know already, you can follow and listen and subscribe to the Make It podcast on 35 different places across the interwebs, but uh, we would love for your subscription on YouTube. We just started this YouTube page this year. We're so proud of it. It looks great. And I think we already have something along the lines of like 140 or 150 videos up. So by the time this publishes, it'll probably be, probably be a lot more than that. So please subscribe, support that. And, uh, but of course you can find this podcast anywhere you listen to uh, podcasts. Uh, you can learn more about the Make It podcast and what we do as an organization at Bonsai Creative at www.bonsai.film. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on X, formerly called Twitter, at Flame in Your Heart. That's U uh, R, so it's spelled U R, so Flame in U R Heart. Or you can just search for Chris Barkley and I will come right up. If you want to reach out to the absentee Nicholas Bugs, you can find Nick and, and reach out to him and tell him how disappointed you are in him for not making this uh, indie talk at Nick at bonsai.film. Yes, that's an email address. He is a bold man. Uh, reach out to him, send him a line via email. And then last but not least, we do this incredible bi-weekly newsletter. It is uh, some of the most hard to find and interesting things happening in the film. We do not just 
aggregate a bunch of headlines from Variety and Hollywood Reporter and throw them in, in our newsletter and say, here, eat this. Uh, <laughs> that's not what we do. That would be no value to you. We find the things that are hidden under the rocks, the gems, the needles in the haystack, and then we put them together and give them to you along with some POV of our own in commentary. So you can subscribe to that at www.bonsai.film forward slash subscribe and you will not regret it. So with that, Maggie, I appreciate you so much. We'll talk again soon. And instead of Nick, I will leave us with the credo. Be better, be creative, be engaged, and we'll talk to you next time on the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Love it. Thank you, Chris. Of course. Be good. Awesome. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to our podcast on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts by searching for Make It Banzai Creative, and the show will pop right up. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at underscore Banzai Creative and on Facebook and LinkedIn by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative. In addition, you can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film. You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we are trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please consider supporting our Patreon page. We spend a combined 35 hours a week producing each episode. We do this with a small team of go-getters that are passionate about film and connecting people with similar interests across the globe. And we have lots of goodies in store for our supporters, including bonus content, exclusive swag, and discounts and freebies to private film events. If that sounds like something you can get behind, Donations start at only $5 monthly. And, of course, if you're looking to take a big step toward your film's financial success, go to www.banzai.film and click on Services to explore our unrivaled approach to film marketing. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged. And thank you for listening.